touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com, and today I'm flying by the seat of my pants, which is, you know, not nearly as efficient as flying on a 757, which I did recently, as I have returned from Los Angeles, the city of angels, where I attended the 2017 E3 conference, formerly known as the Electronic Entertainment Expo. And E3, for those who do not know, is all about video games and computer games in all of their forms, whether they are console, PC-based, handheld, VR, all shapes and sizes of games are represented there. And typically, E3 is a place where various game studios will get together and show off games that are in development. Typically, they tend to be pretty close to going live, going gold, as they say, and giving industry uh, industry folks and, and media people a quick early look so that they can get an appreciation for it and then hype up the games. It becomes a big marketing push for these companies. Uh, this year was a little different. E3 2017 had a bit of a change in that the organization that throws E3 decided that for the first time in many years – it would open up the conference to the general public. Now, you had to purchase a ticket to go, but for the first time in ages, the general public was allowed to buy tickets to attend E3. And obviously, a lot of people were very eager to do that because it meant getting that head start on everybody else, on the coolest games and gear that were right around the corner. As a result... E3 was crazy busy, y'all. I mean, they had 68,400 attendees. So let me describe what a typical E3 is like and then try to describe what E3 2017 is like. A typical E3 is crazy busy, super crowded, partly because I think some of the people who are attending there as industry attendees are industry attendees only if you stretch your imagination pretty far. Like their job descriptions and their job, their duties and responsibilities may only tangentially be related to video games and computer games. So as someone from the media who is there to try and cover the event, it was always challenging because you had a lot of people in a limited amount of space, it takes place at the Los Angeles Convention Center, which is a quite large building, but still a limited space. And you would have to wait, even as media, for a while to get one-on-one -on -one time with various game titles, new pieces of equipment. If you wanted to talk to a developer or someone in marketing, it might take a little while because there are just a lot of people there. Opening it up to the public meant that there were even more people this year. And I don't want you to think that this is just Jonathan complaining that there were a bunch of commoners all around me as I regally stride through the Los Angeles Convention Center. I don't mean to say that at all. They had paid for that privilege and they had every right to be there. It did make my job more challenging, but at the same time, I was glad that so many people got to experience something that excited them and brought them happiness. People who are very avid gamers got that chance to do something that we in the media can do fairly frequently. And to me, that is a valuable experience. So I don't want to take anything away from it. I think that they had every right to be there based upon the rules. I don't know if the rules were necessarily the most intelligent thing to do. If you, It depends on what the goal is for your conference. If the goal is to allow these various outlets, these various uh, media outlets access to video game studios, it makes it more difficult. But if your goal is to drum up excitement in general for video games, it definitely did that. So while there were negative aspects in the sense that it was harder to get access to the people, things, and games that I wanted to, uh, 
On the flip side, people were having a good time. So I can't really complain too much. Also, there was way more programming at this year's E3 than you typically would see. Normally, when you go to the E3 conference, you have press events that precede the show floor being open. That's when big companies like EA, Bethesda, Microsoft, Sony, Ubisoft, Nintendo, they'll hold these enormous events to announce gear and video games and uh, various news items to the press. Following those press days, you then have the exhibit floor open, and that's where you get to have the hands-on time with the various demos that are available. And not every game has a demo available. Sometimes all you get to see is a cinematic that gives you an idea of what the game is about and what it its gameplay might be like. But in many cases, there are demos available for you to try out. Uh, this year, they also had the E3 Coliseum, where there was ongoing panel discussions about game development, the rise of VR, how augmented reality is poised to make a big impact on the gaming world, uh, where uh, 4K resolution is becoming a bigger deal. So there's a lot more information going on around the conference than you would typically see. On top of that, you had a lot of media outlets that had a consistent presence on the show floor itself. GameSpot, for example, had their own stage. IGN had their own stage. YouTube had a stage. And they were presenting content pretty much throughout the entire conference with specific interviews and hands-on time with lots of different titles. So there was no shortage of information. And for the larger outlets, it probably wasn't that much more difficult than a normal E3, except if you had to go do a, a tour of a specific booth, you then had to try and move through these masses of people that uh, didn't move particularly quickly and were challenging to get around. Uh, if you were the lucky type of person who was at a stage and people came to you, life was awesome. I, however, was on my own. I didn't have a crew with me, so I was just one little person walking around big rooms filled with lots of other people, both little and much bigger than I am. And uh, it was impressive. It's always an impressive experience. There are a lot of studios that end up making very elaborate booths to draw you in. Uh, one of the big titles that was on display was Shadow of War, which is the sequel to Shadow of Mordor. And I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I have a Lord of the Rings tattoo on me, for goodness sakes. And I was drawn to it anyway, but I was extra drawn to it when I saw they had an enormous dragon sculpture outside and they were allowing people to get on a saddle and have their picture taken on the back of the dragon. And while I did not stand in line to play all the different demos, I did stand in line to get my picture taken on a dragon. That tells you where my priorities are. I'm not a proud man. Some would argue I'm just a boy. But I was a boy on a dragon, and it was awesome. So let's talk about some of the stuff that came out at E3 and some of the things I did while I was there. The stuff I was specifically checking out. One of the big stories was that Microsoft announced the Xbox One X console. The One X console is the most powerful console on the market, at least according to Microsoft, it is. Uh, this was the one that had been codenamed Project Scorpio, and it has some pretty hefty specs. It is largely designed to be a 4K gaming machine. 4K meaning 4K resolution. This is ultra high definition resolution. This is both cool and somewhat perplexing. Maybe not perplexing, but problematic. And that is you cannot take advantage of 4K resolution unless you have a 4K television set. If you have a regular HD TV set, 1080 resolution, you're not going to see the benefit of 4K streaming because your television is physically incapable of displaying an image at that resolution. You would have to go out and buy a 4K television set, which depending upon the brand and the size 
could get pretty expensive. We're talking more than $1,000 in some cases. So there's that. You would have to buy that set in order for you to be able to take advantage of these consoles. Right now, there's not a huge amount of ultra-high-definition content. So if you're buying a TV just for playing 4K games and you've got the cash to do it, that's awesome. You can go out, buy a 4K set, and buy the Xbox One X. By the way, the One S also does ultra-high-definition. It's just not optimized for it the way the 4X is, or the One X, I should say. Also, Microsoft, what's with the naming convention? We have the Xbox, the Xbox 360, the Xbox One, the Xbox One S, and then the Xbox One X, which I argue looks like the Xbox One 10 with 10 as a Roman numeral. I know that you have trouble counting because Windows went from Windows 8 to Windows 10, but let's get a handle on that, shall we? And I'm saying this as an Xbox fan. Anyway, the One X is really geared for this 4K gaming experience. If you don't have the 4K television, there's not a huge number of compelling reasons to get the Xbox One X. And my question is, does it make sense to go ahead and buy an Xbox One X, which is going to be sold for about $499 starting November 7th of 2017. Does it make sense to buy one of those and then either buy a 4K television or wait until you're ready to replace your existing TV and then buy a 4K television and consider it future-proofing? Or by the time we see gamers start to have 4K television sets as their default, because most of us aren't replacing our TVs that frequently. It's an expensive thing to do. If you're like most people and you're not replacing your TV regularly, does it make more sense to just skip the Xbox One X until 4K TVs become the new default, just like HDTV is the default now? Wait until 4K becomes the new default. By then, it could be possible that Microsoft will have another generation of console out. So in other words, the One X might be a stopgap and that you would buy it and it would only be the newest, hottest thing for a couple of years before the next true generational change in Xbox happens. Or are we approaching peak console performance and therefore the One X is just as good a purchase as anything else because we're not likely to see an enormous leap in technology beyond what the One X is capable of doing. These are difficult questions to answer. The One X will also support some VR stuff potentially in the future, so that's really cool. And, uh, you know, I'm not against the Xbox One X, but I'm not, I'm not completely sold on it being the be-all, end-all of gaming. So Microsoft's press release where they were talking about the One X, I, I thought it was neat, but I don't know that I'm going to jump out and just buy it immediately. Uh, it does have some pretty impressive specs, not as impressive as a dedicated gaming rig. If you look at the Xbox One X, it's got an eight custom core microprocessor. It's based off the x86 architecture that Intel creates. It's clocked at 2.3 gigahertz. That's fast. It's not as fast as what you will find in premium gaming rigs on the PC side. Uh, it's faster than the PlayStation. PlayStation has eight Jaguar core processor at 2.1 gigahertz. Um, and it has, it has a, a, uh, GPU that's clocked at uh, 1,172 megahertz as opposed to 911 megahertz on the PlayStation 4 Pro. It's got 12 gigabytes of GDDR5 RAM. Again, compared to the PlayStation 4 Pro, that has 8 gigabytes of GDDR RAM. And it's got a memory bandwidth of 326 gigabytes per second, which is pretty impressive. It's also got a 1 terabyte hard drive, and it can play 4K UHD Blu-ray uh, video. So it's definitely the most powerful console available right now, but that may not be a credit it can claim 
for very long. There's always going to be other people working on the next big console. My other question for people would be, does it make sense to invest in a 4K television set when there's not much other content for 4K out there. You could get 4K for Netflix. You can get some 4K YouTube content, assuming that you have a fast enough internet connection to pull that 4K content in onto your screen. There are only a few 4K optical discs out there so that if you wanted to buy physical media and watch it in 4K, there are a few uh, examples of that, but it's not widespread at the moment. So if there's very little content out there, does it make sense to make that investment? Or would it make more sense to just go ahead and invest in a true gaming rig where you're building a gaming rig from scratch, which can already play at 4K resolutions depending upon the the monitor, the display you have, um, and can be VR ready. And also they're customizable. You can choose which uh, options you want for your gaming rig. You just have to make sure that you're Making that you're picking everything that's compatible with each other because not all processors are compatible with all motherboards, for example. But as long as you're being careful and you're picking all the right components, you can build a really incredible gaming rig and potentially end up spending about the same amount of money you would if you were buying an Xbox One X plus a 4K television set. So it just ends up creating questions about where are your priorities as far as uh, games are concerned. That being said, I thought that the games that were playing on the Xbox One X looked very pretty. I didn't get a chance to get a lot of hands-on uh, experience with them. And I'm also wondering what some of the games are actually about. Like, there's BioWare's game Anthem. It was shown off a little bit with a couple of videos, but we didn't really get to learn very much about it. It does look kind of neat, and it looks like you're going to be able to play as sort of a superhuman-like character wearing a power suit. Now, the power suit is what appears to give you extra abilities. And it does look pretty, but I don't know much about it. Uh, I'm excited about the Player Unknown's Battlegrounds port that's coming to the Xbox One X. So for those who don't know what Player Unknown's Battlegrounds is, it's like the movie Battle Royale, or if you prefer Hunger Games, where as a player, you are put into an environment with up to uh, 99 other players, and your goal is to be the last survivor out of all 100. And you run around looking for weapons and equipment uh, on a map where you get an increasingly smaller amount of area to play in. The area gets restricted over time, and if you don't get to the safe zone, then you start taking damage until you die. Well, this has been out in an early build for PCs for a while. It's not a fully finished game yet, but it's been available on PCs for a while. Now it's going to be available for the Xbox One and uh, I, I, that'll work not just on the Xbox One X, but the other Xbox One uh, consoles as well. So I'll probably try it. I'll be one of the bullet sponges that dies. Like, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll be in the first 10% to die on any given day. If I don't die in that first 10%, it'll only be because I lucked out and landed in an area that did not have other players in it. And I was still pretty close to the safe zone. That's the only way I can imagine not almost instantaneously dying in this game. However, I'm still going to play it. Uh, one of the stories I thought that was hilarious was that Minecraft is getting a 4K upgrade. And if you've ever played Minecraft, you know that it's a blocky game. And to think of a super duper graphics pack giving 4K capability so that you get very high resolution blocky games is somewhat hilarious. But it does mean that the textures and the reflections from water, those sort of effects, are going to be much more interesting. Uh, there were some other cool games that were shown off at the Microsoft conference. Crackdown 3 was looking good. Sea of Thieves looks good, especially if you like pirates like I do. Um, and then, you know, we saw some other stuff that's, again, not not exclusive to Xbox. Like, Assassin's Creed Origins. I'm not a huge Assassin's Creed fan. I think that the art is amazing. I think the gameplay is fun, but the games are so long that the gameplay gets really repetitive. And this is true for every single version of Assassin's Creed. The only one I played from start to end 
without taking a break was Black Flag because it was a pirate game. And as I've already asked, uh, made, made clear, I love pirates. So Black Flag was the only one I ever played all the way through. Origins looks pretty, uh, but I don't, I don't think that will be one that sells me on the Xbox One X. I don't think, uh, seeing it, uh, in that, that style is definitely going to get me on board. Shadow of War, maybe, because I do like the Shadow of Mordor games. Sony, meanwhile, their press conference was a lot different from Microsoft's. Microsoft's was traditional where people come out, they talk about games, they show a clip. Maybe they show a second clip, some other people come out, they talk about games, so on and so forth throughout the press conference. Sony's was essentially an hour-long series of trailers for different games, uh, they did have a couple of different surprises in theirs, including the fact that they were going to have um, a, uh, a a sequel to, or not a sequel, I'm sorry, a reboot of Shadow of the Colossus, a very popular game for the PS2. This one's going to be a re, re-remastered version of Shadow of Colossus. So if you really like that game on the PS2, good news, it's going to be available on the PS4 uh, Pro and it's going to look super pretty. Um, you know, we saw some other stuff like a God of War game, which kind of falls in that same category as Assassin's Creed in my mind. It's a game that is fun initially, but tends to get really repetitive. Um, that's maybe that's just me. Uh, maybe it's just that the action games don't have enough variety in them for to keep my attention, but they tend to be pretty linear levels with pretty repetitive gameplay. We saw some more about PlayStation VR games. VR in general at E3 was a big, big deal. There were a lot of different companies showing off VR experiences. Uh, Bethesda, for example, showed off VR experiences for Fallout 4 uh, as well as for Doom, and both of those looked really cool. I wish I could have had a chance to get into the Fallout 4 VR demo because I love the Fallout series, and the VR part looked pretty neat. But PlayStation's VR is probably the the bargain entry el- uh, way of getting into virtual reality. So many people already have a PlayStation 4 that that part's not terribly expensive. The uh you know, it still costs quite a bit to get all the VR components, but it's less expensive than buying a gaming rig capable of running VR plus all the peripherals you would need like an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift. Uh the question is has the PSVR experience improved enough so that it doesn't seem quite as janky? Because out of all the VR, dedicated VR sets that I've heard about, the most common complaint I hear about PSVR is just that the actual experience of playing it uh, can be a little rough. The tracking is not as accurate as on other systems. I do hear that it's more comfortable to wear, than a lot of other systems are, but that's less accurate, and that's problematic from anything that's a virtual reality game. Uh, we saw a PlayStation 4 exclusive that I actually think is interesting enough to possibly make me buy a PS4, which is called Detroit Become Human. This one I like because it follows a plot that I find very interesting, the idea of an Android based revolution. Androids that feel that they have been mistreated and they have no representation are rebelling against their human creators. This is a theme we see throughout science fiction. I mean, you can watch the movie Blade Runner and you can get a feel for this kind of thing. Uh, But it looks really nice. I don't know how it plays. Didn't get my hands on it. And Spider-Man. Spider-Man for the PlayStation 4 looks amazing. And I say that as someone who cautions people against licensed games because often those games tend to be not great. Like we get some good ones. The Batman Arkham series is legitimately a lot of fun. Most of the Lego series are legitimately a lot of fun, at least for a while. But for all of those, you get nine versions of Superman 64, which is legitimately the least fun a person can have while playing a console except for maybe if they're playing E.T., which was also a licensed property and was terrible. So that was Microsoft and Sony. I got more to say about E3, but before I jump into all of that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. (music) 
now that I covered Microsoft and Sony, let's talk about some of the developers that were out there and some of the stuff they showed off. So one of the big ones would be Ubisoft. And I've talked a little bit about some of the stuff Ubisoft showed off because they were also featured in the other press releases. But one of the moments of E3 that I thought was really entertaining is that E3 is a place where video game producers can become like rock stars. And one of the rock stars that got a huge ovation was Shigeru Miyamoto, who is the guy behind Mario. I mean, Miyamoto is beloved in gaming circles, particularly fans of Nintendo love Miyamoto. And Miyamoto came out during Ubisoft's uh, press event. In fact, he was the, the he helped kick off the event to introduce a game called Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle, which is a mashup between the Nintendo Mario series and the Raving Rabbids series. And Rabbids are sort of these chaotic little critters that have this tendency to enact cartoon violence on one another. And uh, this is going to be a turn-based strategy tactics game. So similar to something like a Final Fantasy, or really even more similar to something like XCOM, actually. But it's obviously much more cartoonish than than that. And uh, it looked ridiculous. Whether or not I would ever pick it up, I don't know. But it definitely looked like um, a silly idea. And I'm all for silly ideas. I, I'd like to see that. We got to see a a virtual reality game called Transference with Elijah Wood as part of the game uh, promotion. Elijah Wood saying that they were trying very hard to create a VR experience. And um, this was supposed to allow, like it's, it, the world is supposed to be in a world where people's thoughts and experiences can be recorded and then uh, allow other people to experience it firsthand. Again, this is an idea in science fiction that we've seen quite a few times. Uh, there's some movies that essentially follow this line of logic where you can replay someone else's memory and experience it firsthand. In fact, you could argue that the Assassin's Creed series is ultimately a variation on this theme. But that's about all we know about transference, uh, apart from the fact that it's supposed to come out in the spring of 2018, and it's supposed to be available for all the major VR platforms. Uh, we also saw a, a showing of Skull and Bones, one of the games about pirates that I'm very excited about. Uh, Skull and Bones is based off of the Assassin's Creed Black Flag ship combat. So... In some ways, it looks like it's a little limited because it's based off of leading crews of pirates on a ship uh, against other ships. So really, you control a ship. You are able to, you know, fire upon enemies, that kind of thing. But as far as I can tell, that's the extent of the game. Like, it's it's tactics and arcade-based. It doesn't have any other elements. Like, as far as I can tell, you can't board another ship and have sword fighting in it, for example, at least not the the stuff I saw, but it did look kind of neat. Um, it looks like it'll have a competitive element where you can have leaderboards about who are the greatest pirates on the seven seas. And I'm sure that will become a very competitive space, but uh, that one also caught my attention. And one that I forgot to mention, another game that uh, I think looks really dark and compelling is Far Cry 5. The Far Cry series tends to be very excessive and over the top, but this most recent one is going to be set in a rural part of Montana, and apparently the uh, enemies you go up against are a militant group of separatists who have their own essential arsenal and are in control of this area of Montana. And there are several people who do not like that. They can't, they're, they're essentially being repressed. And your job is to resist against this group. 
Uh, it looks pretty dark. And I'm very curious to hear how reviews portray it. Because playing a game that dark and politically charged, I think it has some um, potential hurdles to overcome. That being said, the Far Cry games are pretty well designed. I enjoy them. I like big sandbox games. Um, Ubisoft surprised everybody with a sequel to a game that originally came out in 2003. So it was a long time coming to get a sequel, 14 years. Uh, the original game being Beyond Good and Evil. So now we have Beyond Good and Evil 2. And we saw a little CGI trailer uh, of this. And it is almost impossible for me to explain what Beyond Good and Evil is all about. So I recommend, if you have not seen the trailer, to go check it out. See if you can track down the trailer to be Beyond Good and Evil 2 so that you can get a bit of a feel for what that was all about. Bethesda would be another big name that was there. Uh, Bethesda, of course, is the game company that is behind stuff like the Elder Scrolls series, the Fallout series, both of which are... Uh, my favorites, I love both the Elder Scrolls and the Fallout series. They're some of my favorite games of all time. The We did not see a new Fallout game, nor did we really see a new Elder Scrolls game. They are bringing uh, the Skyrim chapter of Elder Scrolls to the Nintendo Switch, uh, which I normally wouldn't even comment on, except for the fact that it does have within the game the ability for you to find an outfit that is essentially Link from the Legend of Zelda series. It's not quite enough to convince me to go out and buy a Nintendo Switch just so I could play Skyrim for like the fourth time and dress up as Link, but it's darn close. They also showed off a, uh, uh, like I said, the Fallout 4 virtual reality experience, which looks amazing. I would love to play a Skyrim version of, of uh, VR, but I guess I'll have to wait for that. We saw Wolfenstein 2. That was one of the most popular games on the show floor. The line for Wolfenstein 2 was m more than three hours long while I was walking around. I did not get in line for it. I had to do a lot of other things. But I got to see it. Uh, and I hope that all the people who were in line had a chance at playing it because that's a long time to wait for anything. They also announced that the area of uh, their their Elder Scrolls universe, Morrowind, would be coming to Elder Scrolls Online, and they showed off an expansion that allows multiplayer combat where it's team-based, and it would be teams of four. So you could have three teams of four, four versus four versus four, playing in object-oriented game types on the Elder Scrolls platform. And so I got to try it. And that was one of the few games I had a handheld experience with. Like I actually got to sit down and play. A hands-on experience, I should say. Uh, and it was fun. Uh, mostly because my team won. Because it was Capture the Flag. And the other teams all thought of it as deathmatch. So they just ran to the middle of the map and started shooting everybody. Whereas I ran around the edge of the map, picked up flags, and brought them back to my base. So it turns out that I am an elite Elder Scrolls online player as long as no one is paying attention to what the actual objective is of the game. Once they pay attention to the objective, I am no longer a contender. But for a brief while, I was on top, and it was glorious. Uh, another company that had a big event, in fact, they had the earliest one was EA, where we got to see stuff like uh, Battlegrounds 1 DLC, which would put you in the Russian theater for uh, Battlegrounds, and that's kind of neat. Uh, new maps and new weapons for Battlegrounds if you are into that massive multiplayer competitive approach. Uh, they showed off some sporting titles, which is par for the course for EA, and I use par for the course correctly there. It's a sporting term, y'all. Including a story mode for Madden, so if you were just always wanted to pick up a copy of Madden, but you felt like there wasn't a strong enough single-player campaign, I guess that's the solution for you. Uh, it's not really my thing, so I guess I shouldn't get too snarky. Uh, they also showed off Anthem. They showed off uh, the fact that you'll be able to 
play as characters from all three of the trilogies of Star Wars in Battlefront 2. The first Battlefront focused on the original trilogy, episodes 4 through 6, for those keeping count. But the Battlefront 2 game will allow you to play as uh, units and characters from all three of the series. So if you were just dying to control a battle droid for the prequels, first of all, I don't even know you anymore. But second of all, you'll be able to do it in Battlegrounds 2. Or Battlefront 2, I should say. Not Battlegrounds. That's the other thing about these games, y'all, is that the names start getting real confusing. Uh, especially if you are sleep-deprived and on East Coast time, but trying to deal with West Coast schedules. I found that to be rather challenging. Uh, so those were like the big press events. Nintendo had a pre-recorded event that was not officially part of E3. Uh, they've, they've kind of pulled away from E3 for the last couple of years, but they did announce some stuff like Rocket League is coming to Switch. Rocket League is a fun car game where you're essentially playing soccer, but with, with, uh, rocket cars. Uh, it's going to come to the N Nintendo Switch and it's going to be a cross-platform game, just like Minecraft. These are cross-platform games that will allow people on different platforms to play with each other. So if you're on a Nintendo Switch and I'm on my Xbox, we can each play Rocket League against each other, even though we're using different platforms. Same thing with Minecraft. The only group to stay out of this is Sony. Sony did not agree to do cr cross-platform gaming, and their reason that they gave was that they didn't want to subject their players to harmful gaming experiences. Essentially saying that the people playing Minecraft are young and they didn't want them running into all the ne'er-do-wells who are on Xbox Live. But if Nintendo is cool with it and Nintendo is super protective of their users, I am very curious if that's actually PlayStation's strategy or if it is, as I suspect, a different reason for not getting into cross-platform, which would be Sony wants to lock people into their platform and their experiences because one of the most valuable tools you have selling any sort of console is what do your friends have? If all of your friends have the PS4, then you're more likely to buy a PS4 because you want to be able to play with your friends. So that's what you need. If everything's cross-platform, you could buy whatever console you want. And if you don't want a PS4, you could go out and get an Xbox One or a Nintendo Switch or a PC. And you could still play because the games you're playing are cross-platform. Sony not playing ball with that tells me that maybe they want to try and hold on to exclusivity and keep their ecosystem closed so that they can maintain a market advantage that way. That only works for so long because eventually gamers will say, I want to be able to play with my friends no matter what they're on. And there's a chance that Sony could lose uh, some market share because of that. One way to combat that is to come out with really good exclusive games, and Sony's really good at that. A lot of the exclusive titles for PlayStation are very compelling games that you cannot get anywhere else. I mean, that's what exclusive means. And that helps Sony maintain its position in the market, even if these other decisions are more questionable. Uh, getting back to Nintendo, they announced some more of the titles you would expect, stuff like Kirby and Pokemon and Metroid and a Yoshi game. Uh, so a lot of stuff that you would, you, you would totally anticipate from Nintendo, including some stuff that I didn't necessarily anticipate, like downloadable content packs for Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh, I'm not familiar with Nintendo releasing that many DLC packs. That's something I, I'm used to for computers, for Xbox, and for Sony. So to see Nintendo get into this game is interesting. I don't know how long they've been doing that. Um, I have not been keeping track of them as much as I should have. But these DLC content packs are going to be uh, part of the $19.99 expansion pass. So you get the Master Trials on June 30th, and the Champions Ballad, uh, and then that'll be, Champions Ballad will be sometime around the holiday season. And they showed some Amiibos, so if you're someone who collects Amiibos, you can totally get your Amiibos. 
I'm I'm not an amiibo person. I don't I don't have a lot. I don't have an active Nintendo system right now. Uh, the last one I had was the original Wii, and I haven't had it hooked up to my television for a very long time. So it was an interesting uh, presentation, but it didn't have a whole lot of uh, applicability to me. Now, I've got more to say about my specific experiences at E3, but before I jump into that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so like I said, I didn't really get a chance to get a lot of hands-on time with the various video games while I was there. So what did I do? I mean, I was out there for several days, right? I focused a lot on hardware. So one of the things I wanted to do was meet up with people to potentially talk about developments in hardware and maybe even line up some chances for future episodes of Tech Stuff where we'd have a deeper dive on things. One of the first companies I went to was Alienware, which is a division of Dell Computers. It was acquired by Dell uh, more than a decade ago. And last year, Alienware celebrated its 20th anniversary. The company has been around, obviously, for 20 years, building gaming rigs for people that have a certain aesthetic. And that aesthetic is flashy and showy, and they also have some pretty beefy gaming rigs. Uh, Arguably, you could build a machine just as capable or faster than an Alienware machine, but you're not going to get that same aesthetic and you're not, you know, you're, you're going to have to do a lot of that work yourself. So if you have the money and the desire and you find the Alienware aesthetic pleasing, it's an interesting approach. And I like the Alienware designs, so I went there to talk with some of the executives over at Alienware, and we just kind of had a discussion about where the company has come from, where it's going, and my hope is that in the near future, we'll be able to have an interview and do a a, a history or story of Alienware episode. Uh, the big machine they were showing off was the Alienware Area 51, which was a monster. It is a triangular-based case uh, with a huge computer inside of it, and it was triangular partly to allow for better airflow for the cooling purposes of the machine. Because obviously, with real powerful gaming rigs, you've got advanced GPUs and a blistering fast CPU in there. All of those things generate heat, and the more heat they generate, the more it can negatively impact the various components inside the computer. So you have to have a very effective heat management system. And part of it was just the design of this case, which also just made it look like nothing else. I mean, it's a big triangle. Uh, Alienware in general was pretty cool. They also came out with some gaming keyboards, some gaming mice, some displays. So this was the first time they had come out with some peripherals in quite a few years. Uh, and the peripherals were kind of neat too. So I had a good time over at their booth and I'm hoping I can do an episode specifically about Alienware in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I also got a chance to check out some interesting work in motion capture or mocap. Typically, if you're doing mocap, the way it has normally been done is you go into a big sound studio and you outfit a person wearing a, a costume that has a bunch of points of reference on the costume itself. So if you've ever looked at behind-the-scenes footage of stuff like Lord of the Rings or Planet of the Apes, you've probably seen this, where actors are wearing these suits with lots of different uh, dots, usually, or little balls on them to act as points of reference for the camera. The camera records the actor's movements, and that information gets sent to a computer that analyzes the movement of all those individual points of reference and then translates that into an animation that you can apply to a different kind of character. So, for example, with Lord of the Rings, Gollum, who was portrayed by Andy Serkis, would, was a computer-generated character that was animated based upon the actual movements of Andy Serkis as he moved around inside this motion capture suit. Well, the motion capture suit I got to see at E3 doesn't use cameras at all. It's not an optical-based system. Instead, it uses magnets and magnetic fields, and it measures the fluctuations of magnetic fields to track movement and thus be able to capture movement. 
And one of the biggest challenges that these sort of systems have is that while they are cheaper and more accessible than optical-based systems, you don't need an enormous studio in order to capture that information. Because they're magnetic and magnetic fields can interfere with one another, you could get errors in your data collection. So you get stuff like drift. Drift is when, as you are holding a position, your magnets start to assume that other magnetic fields are actually the Earth's magnetic field. It'd be like having a compass. If a compass is sitting by itself and there's no magnetic field uh, that's interfering with it, the needle is going to point to magnetic north. That's the purpose of a compass. But if you bring an actual magnet close to the compass, as it gets closer, that magnetic field is strong enough to deflect the needle so that it's pointing toward your magnet, not towards magnetic north. And it, quote unquote, assumes that the magnet you're holding is magnetic north. The same thing is true of magnetic motion capture, that these different components on the suit itself, plus things that are in your environment, such as metal girders or a steel ladder, can affect what they consider to be their orientation. So the animation could come out looking really weird. A person's pelvis might be facing front and back instead of left and right, for example, because of this drift. Well, the company I talked to had developed software that helps correct for those problems so that while the technology itself still works the same on the software side, it can be reinterpreted so that you don't get those errors. I'm hoping that I can talk with them for a future episode as well to really talk about the design and challenges of magnetic motion capture because it's a really cool technology and I want you guys to learn more about it. I also saw a lot of fabric computer interfaces, things like gloves that you could put on and through gesture control, you could have interactions with various types of software. This is not that different from, again, optical-based systems where you have, say, an infrared camera pointing at yourself and you wave in front of the infrared camera and it's able to interpret your motions and put that as uh, commands within a video game. But in this case, you're talking about using actual fabric that has sensors woven into it that uh, will pick up all that information all on its own. The advantage to that is that you don't have to worry about a camera facing in on your gaming area all the time. There are certain concerns about privacy when it comes to these optical-based systems and how much information is actually being transmitted and who can see it. If you're using something that's using an actual physical piece of fabric as opposed to a camera, then whenever it's not in use, you don't have to worry about it sending data somewhere that you don't know about. You don't have to worry about being an a, a, a intrusion on your privacy. So it's a gesture command system, and you might argue we've already got a solution for that, but it's a different approach to that solution, and I found that really interesting. I also had a chance to talk with one of the organizers of Child's Play, which is a charitable effort from the Penny Arcade Expo folks that tries to raise money to provide games and game systems to hospitals to help kids who are in for therapeutic treatment or you know have been hospitalized. And the research has gone beyond just let's raise money to throw an Xbox or a PS4 or something at these hospitals. It has reached a point where they're actually looking at therapeutic games, games that have been shown to help lower a child's anxiety levels so that the child doesn't experience pain as much or is able to calm down before going in for a surgical procedure. I found that fascinating. So I hope to have a future episode with the organizers of Child's Play to really talk about the evolution of that program and how people can get involved if they're interested. So I had a lot of opportunities to explore technology and meet with really interesting people and to explore elements around gaming that were not directly tied to a specific video game title. And that to me was invaluable. It was a 
a really interesting experience. And I have to say that the people at E3 are probably my favorite part of any of those conferences. It's the chance to have a conversation with really smart people who are dedicating their intelligence in innovative and interesting ways that perhaps you never would have anticipated. That was my favorite part of E3. But that might be because I never got to play a pirate game. Anyway, that's the Jonathan Strickland E3 2017 experience. If you are interested in learning more about what happened at E3, well, there are about a billion different websites out there that have covered it extensively. Uh, some of them include things like The Verge or Polygon, which is really the gaming arm of The Verge. Or uh, YouTube has hours and hours and hours of footage of developer interviews, hands-on time with games. You can check all those out. IGN did a huge amount of work out there. Really, your outlet of choice probably has an enormous supply of E3 information if you want to get more specifics on that. If there are any elements about E3 or video games in general you would like me to cover in a more focused episode of Tech Stuff in the future, get in touch with me. Tell me what you want to hear, whether it's the story of how Microsoft got into the Xbox business or the birth of the PlayStation or the evolution of a character like Donkey Kong, whatever it might be, let me know. Send me an email. My address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can watch me record these shows live. And if you're lucky, you might even see Ben Bolin accidentally burst into my studio and then curse and then run away which totally happened today, but you didn't hear it because we edited that part out. But to see that, you need to go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. I stream on Wednesdays and Fridays. You can go to twitch.tv slash techstuff to see the schedule there. And I'll talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 